0: I never know quite what to preach on these uh, special seasons of the year, like Lent. Part of me wants to just carry on with our study of Luke. I'm kind of uh, spring-loaded to do that, and so I've spent a lot of time this week working on Luke. But as I prepared for our worship this morning, what captured my heart was that reading in Genesis 22. So I finally decided to set Luke aside and go back and take a harder look and revisit uh, Genesis 22. So if you'll turn with me again to that passage, which we read as our Old Testament reading, I'd like for us to look at it uh, again. Genesis 22 contains the second most powerful story I've ever heard in my life. Second only to that powerful account of Jesus' death on the cross with which it has a strange similarity. This text is actually too much to preach. I mean, what can you say that isn't dwarfed by the reality of the story itself? What could our minds comprehend about this event so that we could unpack all of its implications? We just cannot. So we walk lightly across holy ground as we read this text again. Let me read it a little further down to verse 19. Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed on in Beersheba. This text says a lot to us. Let me just reduce it down to two simple truths that we need to meditate on. The first is this. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. We tend to think of faith as a moment in time, an hour of decision and faith may certainly have a decisive starting point but that is not its distinctive character in spite of what we may have heard faith is not punctiliar it's not a point in time faith is linear it goes on and on it believes and continues to believe it practices what it confesses in short it trusts and obeys. That's why the New Testament can talk about the obedience of faith in Romans, or obeying the gospel in 2 Thessalonians, or works of faith in First Thessalonians. True faith means to trust and obey. And that's what we learn from Abraham's example as God put him to the ultimate test. We've heard the story. We've read it twice now this morning. Let's think about what made it such a test. Several things. First, God demanded Abraham's greatest treasure. That's a test. God demanded his greatest treasure. Without any explanation, God addressed Abraham with startling words. With perfect clarity, there was never any doubt what the Lord said. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Oh, God had stretched Abraham before, when Abraham lost his nephew Lot, and in the chapter before this, when he had to send Hagar and Ishmael away. But this was completely different. This is an ultimate test. Abraham had no treasure like Isaac. Isaac was his son for whom he waited 25 years. Isaac was his only son, the, Sarah, the son of his old age, the miracle baby, the son of laughter, God's most precious gift to him ever. God could not have asked for anything more precious. And folks, God still has the right to claim our most precious treasure. He may ask of you, what cost you everything you have? He doesn't apologize for claiming such sovereignty over our lives. Indeed, he will not settle for less. And when God claims your best treasure, true faith trusts him enough to obey. It wasn't just the treasure god demanded what abraham could not understand demanded his treasure but then demanded what something he could not understand isaac was the child of promise god himself miraculously gave to abram and sarah this son god pointedly declared that all the covenant promises that he had made would not only be fulfilled but they would specifically be fulfilled through Isaac. So doesn't God keep his promises? This doesn't make any sense. And human sacrifice. The, the Canaanites did such abominable things, but not God's people. The thought of it would have been as much, uh, 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 as repulsive to Abraham as it is to you. And yet, there was God's commands. Take your son and offer him as a burnt offering. Abraham knew with certainty two things, contradictory things. He knew that all God's promises were tied up in Isaac, and he knew that God had told him to go sacrifice Isaac. He could not possibly have understood that contradiction. It was totally incomprehensible. As Alan Ross observes, although the commandment was to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to the Lord, the real point of the act was Abraham's sacrifice of himself, that is, of his will and his wisdom in regard to his son, Isaac. Dr. Robert Rayburn, in uh, speaking about this uh, passage, explains some of what made this so difficult. Let me read some of what he said. He says, what we have here is what we have in many other places of Scripture, namely, the hiddenness of God. What is meant by this is that God acts in ways that are not only mysterious to us, but which defy our wisdom and our understanding. Ways that seem to contradict what we have been taught about God and his character and his ways. Later on, he goes on to say, In Scripture there is nothing of that chatty certainty about God's promises that we find in modern preachers. No, his thoughts are far above ours, a great deep we cannot sound, and his ways are very often simply past finding out no matter how much faith a man or woman has. God often asks of his people very difficult things that are hard to understand, given what we're taught of his love and mercy. And much happens in the world that is frankly very difficult to square with our understanding of the sovereignty of God. So God demanded of Abraham what he could not possibly understand. Some of you come up against that, haven't you? When it seems that God himself has set himself against you. When it seems that God is ignoring his very own possession. when there's absolutely no possibility that anyone could ever bring any sense out of what's going on with you. When even the most optimistic friend have to admit despair. And yet true faith still trusts and obeys whether it understands or not. And that's exactly what Abraham did. The account is striking for its directness and the brevity with which it describes Abraham's profound obedience. We see that he obeys promptly first early in the morning He was up, getting ready to obey God's commands. I can only imagine how many ways I could have figured out to drag my heels in the face of such command. But promptly, he's obeying. He obeys persistently. This was a three-day trip. There was lots of time for cold feet, but Abraham persevered. He kept trusting. He kept walking in obedience. He obeyed rigorously. He, he, he cut the wood and saddled the donkey and he sat out on the journey and traveled to a dis, dis designated place and packed the wood onto Isaac's back and took the fire and the knife himself. They hiked to the place of offering. He built an altar of stones. He prepared the wood. He bound his son. He put him on the altar rigorously doing what God had told him. And in all this account, there is no mention of the thing which, with which we are so consumed. That is, the agonizing emotion that Abraham must have felt. We can try to imagine the agony of his soul, but the text says nothing about it. Well, the text is not concerned how terrible he felt about it all. That's not what constitutes true faith. Only one thing matters. Abraham trusted God enough to do what he said. So this morning I call you to rise above the pseudo-Christianity that is all around us. That notion that faith is driven and defined and ultimately limited by how we feel. Folks, sometimes you're going to feel miserable. How could you feel good about the thought of sacrificing your greatest treasure? How could you feel good about contradictions in your understanding of God that put you in the worst bind in your life? How could you feel good about that? But faith is not about how you feel. Faith is about trusting God enough to do what he says when it makes no sense, when you feel exactly the opposite, when everything within you rebels against that obedience. Right there, God calls us to trust him and obey. So how did Abraham do that? What did he believe that kept him going? Well, it brings us to the second great truth that we learn in this passage, and that's simply this God will provide. God will provide. It's fascinating and enlightening to study the many names by which God reveals himself to us. There are so many. He is El Shaddai, the mighty one. He's El Elun, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's El-Roi, the God that sees me. He's Adonai, the Lord, the Master. He's Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He's Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, our banner. He's Jehovah Rohi, the Lord, our shepherd. And he's also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's also... The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's the bread of life and the light of the world and the door and the good shepherd. and The resurrection and the life and the way and the truth and the life and the true vine. He's the great I Am. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There are just too many names to even mention them all. But here in Genesis 2, God is called by yet another name. A name derived from what Abraham called this place of testing. He called it Jehovah-Jireh. Jehovah-Jireh. And what does that mean? It means the Lord will provide. That was the content of Abraham's faith throughout this great test. The Lord will provide. We see it in his instruction to his servants in verse 5. Very interesting instruction. They we read, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And then we, we will come back to you. You see, this was not a morbid, terrible mission he's going on. He and his son are going to worship the Lord. And not only will they go, they will both return. How does he know that? He doesn't. He can't comprehend it. He only knows. Jehovah, Jireh. The Lord will provide. We see it again in verse 7 and 8. That poignant moment when when Isaac questions him about the Lamb. Father? Yes, my son. Ah, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? God will provide the lamb, my son. Now is that deceit? Does Abraham lie to his son at such a crucial moment? No, this is simply the certainty of Abraham's faith. He does not understand God's ways. He does not know what God is going to do. But this he knows beyond all doubt. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And in the case we're not yet stunned by the depth of Abraham's faith, in Hebrews 11, God explains to us, after the fact, what Abraham was actually thinking at that point. Let me read from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice... He who had received the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead, Hebrews says. Abraham did not know what God was going to do. In fact, he was technically wrong about what he thought might happen. But he knew what God was capable of doing. And he knew that God would certainly provide, however he pleased, for the fulfillment of his promises made concerning Isaac. And so Abraham assumed that God must have planned to raise him from the dead. You see, when Abraham believed that God would provide, it was not looking for a way out of the obedience. He did not expect God to bail him out. He fully expected to sacrifice his son. His faith was that God was able to take care of the keeping of his own promises. God would provide what seemed to be about to be destroyed by Abraham. But God would keep his word somehow. And in fact, God did provide, didn't he? It did not work out as Abraham expected, but according to verse 12, when God saw that Abraham did indeed fear him, when Abraham passed the test of faith by not withholding his son, the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham not to harm his son, and uh, instead Abraham found a ram caught in the thicket, and without any need to be told, he gratefully sacrificed that lamb as a substitute for Isaac. His son, God had provided a substitute offering. Dear people, in all your trouble, in all your tests of faith, I hold before you Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Abraham did not know how God, how God would provide, but he knew that God would provide. And so he trusted him even when he could see nothing. And God is not less concerned about his promises to you, or less able to keep them. So trust him. But well, there's one more thing we need to see. The reason we return to this text during this Lenten season. God not only provided for Abraham in his time of testing, God also provided for the fulfillment of all these things. God could have asked Abraham to take his son out in the back lot of his place and sacrifice him, but he didn't. He said, I want you to go three days journey to a place called uh, Moriah, a mountain called Moriah, three days from Beersheba, and sacrifice him there in the place that I will show you. Moriah well, is not just any hilltop. Later, we learn in Second Chronicles three that that's where Solomon eventually built the temple of the Lord. This was then the site of the future city of Jerusalem. That means that there is that this is also the location of another hilltop, the hilltop we call Calvary. Golgotha. There in about the same place on another day centuries later another father this time the heavenly father sacrificed his only begotten son only this time he did not stop short of the death of his son. For this son the Lord Jesus Christ is both the son of promise represented by Isaac and the sacrificial lamb, represented by the ram caught in the thicket, who died in Isaac's place. In John, Jesus tells us that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. When did that happen? What was Jesus talking about? Could it not have been at this moment? when the love of the Father and the submission of a son and the substitute sacrifice and the deliverance from death all came together before his very eyes on Mount Moriah. If it was not there on Mount Moriah, when on earth might it have been? Where else was the work of Christ so clearly set before Abraham's eyes? Surely the Apostle Paul was thinking about the similarity of these events, when under the guidance of the Spirit, he wrote in Romans 8, what we read earlier, what then shall we say in response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us everything? George Baldwin observes, the Genesis record of Abraham's testing then is rather like the first drawing of a great artist who has in mind a masterpiece. The pencil sketch is perfect in its own right, yet the finished painting far surpasses the original drawing in which the same hand can be seen to have been at work. So you see, this is not primarily a story about Abraham and Isaac. Here God is revealing in very human terms, terms that perhaps we can understand a little better, the glory of the gospel. Here we see how much the Father loves us, that he would sacrifice his only begotten Son. Here we see the great cost the son was willing to pay for our redemption. That he became the sacrificial lamb. Here we see what it means to go free. Because of a substitutionary atonement. It's as if we, like Isaac, were untied and walked away. Free. Because someone died in our place. Now here's something to believe in. And what does it mean to believe? It means to trust and obey that Savior no matter what. Knowing that God will and has and always will provide everything necessary for our salvation. Michael called the Bible teacher of contemporary music, has put this account into music, and I thought I'd just close by reading his poetic version of this story. Here's how it goes. Three days' journey to the sacred place, a boy and a man with a sorrowful face, tortured yet faithful to God's command to take the life of his son in his own hand there's wood and fire where's the sacrifice the questioning voice and the innocent eyes is the son of laughter who you've waited for to die like a lamb to please the Lord God will provide a lamb to be offered up in your place a sacrifice so spotless and clean to take all your sins away a gleaming knife, an accepted choice, a rush of wind and an angel's voice, a ram in the thicket, caught by his horns, and a new age of trusting the Lord is born for God has provided a lamb. He was offered up in your place. What Abraham was asked to do, God's done. He's offered his only son. What Abraham was asked to do, God has done. He's offered his only son. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the glory of the gospel, which we tend to reduce down to little clichés, but yet you picture for us in the most profound human dramas played out, hundreds of years earlier that we might see your wisdom and see how profound Jesus' death on the cross is. During this season of Lent, as we focus more and more on the coming celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection, O Father, possess our hearts with the gospel, we pray. We will not take any of it lightly, but understand it more profoundly. And live it more faithfully. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves, whether good or bad, Lord, have mercy on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.